pray together. Father, we ask that you guide us now as we look at your word. As that scripture reading said, business as usual will be the, really the motto of the day. People going about their lives, and yet, Lord, we don't want to just go about our lives. We want your word to speak to us. We want you to guide us in our daily lives. We want to walk humbly with our God. And so guide us with the Holy Spirit to understand your word and apply it to our daily lives today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you might have heard about that Noah movie, right? Came out here just in 2014. I'd heard about it because my dad had brought a Noah book to me from Remnant Publications. And, it began to, and I began to read that booklet and think to myself, okay, what are they responding to? So I read a movie review, and I don't usually read movie reviews because I don't watch a whole lot of movies like this. I watch some movies, but when you've got four children, what are you going to watch? Okay, <coughs> so, you know, nature things and all of that, and, and, and if, you don't, if you have time, then you're going to find some kind of hobby of your own on the side, right? And so I really don't have time to watch a lot of movies. Am I dull? Mm. Actually, I like to do what I like to do. So whenever I find free time, I don't spend a lot of time with these things. So for me to go and look up a movie review, it's a little struggle for me because I really don't care what's going on in the box office. But some of you might. Some of you might be aware of this. And you might be familiar with people who are going to be asking you questions as a result of having watched that movie. And I'm going to flat out say that movie seemed very bogus to me as I read the movie line. It mentioned Methuselah, Noah, and his sons, and they're pictured in a way linked with magic, magical flaming swords and Ultimately, they're helped by fallen angels called Watchers. And, quote from the movie review, they, the Watchers, came to Earth to help the humans. So, can you get that? Fallen angels came to the world to help the humans, but after learning from them, humans, the humans tried to enslave and kill them. Isn't it just the other way around? That here we were, and they came, not not to learn from us, but to entice us to their knowledge and really to lead us to death. All right, so that's really bogus. Then it mentions eight years, this idea of working on the ark for eight years. But we, write, we find in the book of Genesis that the Holy Spirit would contend with man for 120 years. And then later on, after Noah gets in the boat, he has a battle with Tubal Cain. It's right out of Hollywood. And there he is on the boat and kind of lapses into insanity, wanting to kill his grandchildren. Later, the family stands atop a cliff, and Noah blesses them all as the beginning of a new human race. Wow, that's just a one-page summary of a whole bunch that they had written on the internet there. But I thought to myself, is that really how it goes? In this media age, you can look up anything. You can find these movie reviews. You can find Hollywood takes these stories with maybe little grains of truth, and then they put in all this falseness in there. And so not biblically based, even though people are looking at it, because the Bible paints a very clear picture of the progression from the time of Adam all the way down through the flood and then down through the time of Jesus in the end. It, make, it makes a very clear picture that the generations continued and God tried to maintain oneness with the human race. That Noah movie has nothing to do with the oneness of God. It's all about the action. It's all about the flaming swords. It's all about the magic. It's all about the watchers and all of this. It's all about the action, really. But if you look in the Word of God, it's all about oneness with Him. And even that whole thing about Noah blessing the earth, God blessed them. And so they even got that backwards. And so I'm going to continue with you through the book of Genesis. We're going to eventually get to the story of Noah today. 
but I want you to see what's progressing and leading up to the days of Noah. It says in Genesis chapter 5, verse 1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. This is called a genealogical formula. Anybody like to do genealogy? All right. You start off with one, and eventually you work your way back, right? So you, you find that this is the way that they would express it. This is a literal genealogical account of the family, not working backwards, but working from Adam down, following it down. I have to follow my genealogy back because I really don't know where it began. Whereas here it's saying this is a true account. Kind of like when it said, here are the generations of the heavens and the earth. It was a literal account of creation. Just like this is a literal genealogy of the human race. It says, when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female he created them, and he blessed them and named them man, or mankind, or Adam, singular, when they were created. So we begin with this, this series of verses here. And if you look at it and analyze it, like I like to do sometimes, probably you could get technical and say there's a chiasm in here. Some of us don't even know what that means. And if we do, it's like, okay, who cares anyway? But this idea of you begin with a topic, you build up to another topic, and then downside the other mountain, you have that same first topic again. So you begin with the likeness of God and Adam being created. Then in the middle, you have them, them, them. And then you go back to they were created singular. Okay, you get it? So you've got first singular. Then you get plural right in the middle there, and then you go on back to Adam. What is the emphasis here? We are not islands in and of ourselves. We have a plurality, a oneness in plurality. That is the foundation of the human race because it's the foundation of the Godhead. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One plus one plus one equals one, and yet singular. I mean, Singleness, yet pluralness. The same thing is happening here. A formula that's saying the human race exists in its plurality. And so you have the singleness here. And then you find male and female, which together you would find one plus one. But then they would have offspring. And then you have the third component there. And they would be one. And yet you find it goes back to here. So what's the emphasis of this area? Here it is. Oneness. Human oneness. Adam and Eve had fallen, and yet God is going to try to reinvigorate the world through human oneness. And so as family continued, so did that image of God. And oneness, where would be the location? It would be in the home. Look at this here, verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness. So you have that same idea again. Created in the image of God, in God's likeness. Here it is again. He talks about Seth being in his own likeness after his image. And what was Adam created? Who was God, Adam created in the image of? God. So it's all linking back. The, the, the furtherance of the human race, the image of God, manifesting in the human race, happens through oneness. Adam and Eve, and then they have their son. One plus one plus one equals one. Oneness there again. In the days of Adam, after he became the father of Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. So can you imagine that? I mean, you have this oneness in the family, this institution that was put there at the beginning, along with the Sabbath, to remind us of oneness. And so as we go on down through time, 
Jesus prays the prayer, may they all be one. Well, it was his desire, even in a fallen world, in the home. Some people say that Noah was able to save his household, his family, right? Well, that's really where it would all begin, would be right there in the home. When you leave this building, you know, if you, whether you, I used to live by myself for a while, whether you're living by yourself, whether you're living with your family, whether, you know, you have a f- your family and a f- your father or a mother or whatever, whatever the relationship is outside of this building there, really, when you leave this building, that's when the faith hits the road, if you will. That's where you really apply what you learn. That's where you have to learn to walk humbly with your God, not only in a building like this, because we're all sitting usually, but when you walk out of this building, what's going on in the home? What's going on in the relationships? Because there, God's goal was oneness. And we're going to see how the human race either continues that or they veer way off into evil thoughts continually. The image of God continues in verse 5. Thus all the days Adam lived were 930 years and he died. I can never even imagine living that long. This side of the millennium, I don't see it happening. I, I, it's just not going to happen unless the Lord comes. And here we are, marveling at the 900 years. But can you imagine, here is Adam, who was made in the image of God. Here is Seth, who is after Adam's likeness and, it, and resembles the image of God, right? And Adam influences him and influences another and influences another, influences a whole line of the human race to seek the God whom they had turned away from. Seek this God. You notice up there, I put some numbers. If he lived 930 years, and maybe you can do the math and come out a little more accurate than me. I, you know, I only had a week to work on it. But as you look here, If you live 930 years and you start calculating when these different children were born, Adam would be 130, roughly when Seth was born, then 235 when Enosh was born, Canaan, Kenan, excuse me, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch. You find here Adam is influencing not just Seth, but Enoch, and who else? Methuselah, and who else? Lamech. And you find who would he influence? Noah. Okay, so you find this all goes down in this oneness in Adam's family permeates down and influences generation after generation after generation. Now, Enoch, we know, he walked around 987, okay? That would have been about 57 years after Adam died. But who influenced him to walk with God? Didn't Adam walk with God in the cool of the day? Though he dies, he still has influenced the one who will literally walk into heaven. And we think he's the only one who walks with God. Well, actually, it does say in the Bible, Noah walked with God as well. So where did they learn to walk with God? From their father. Their great, great granddaddy, you go on back to the genealogy, that man, Adam. It's kind of like there I was last night, Friday night, up at Manzanita Lake. And don't get envious, it's 70-some degrees up there uh, is the high, and it's going to be hotter down here probably today than (coughs) the high there. Even your low will probably be high compared to the high. Up th- uh, your low here will actually be really warm compared to the high up there. But as I thought about that last night, I was, I was thinking about this story. I was thinking, here I am. Our family felt compelled to walk over to Manzanita Lake. It was the sun was beginning to set. There's my little boy, Michael. He's grabbing my finger. His little hand fits right there. And so he's grabbing my finger there. We're going over all kinds of trail there. We get over there to the lake, and you know what happens, right? Little boys, they kind of just, or even girls sometimes, 
they just start walking towards the water. They just go on walking towards the water. And what does he do? Does he stop? Not unless I tell him. If I don't tell him to stop, what's he going to do? He's going to walk right into that water. The mud, the, you know, the reeds, whatever he gets into, he's going to walk right into there. And so there I am, his, his dad, just trying to say, Michael, come on back here. And he, he, he obeys me for a little while there. And then he gets excited because he sees the geese out there, and he walks right on into the water there. But it's okay. Take him by the little finger. He takes me by my big finger. His little finger's around my finger. And we walk on back to camp. We get his shoes changed and all of that. Where does this little boy learn to walk with God? He learns to walk with God because his dad walked with God. This little girl learns to walk with God because, her, and his mother too, of course, she's part important part. But this little boy right now is really attached to his daddy. But he's really watching me. His parents, it's a huge influence, is it not? That these little ones look up to us. And so their Adam is 930 years of influencing people, not to take his finger, but to, to take God's hand, to walk with God in all their hearts. 126 years later, after Adam dies, the world is in all kinds of chaotic stuff. Noah comes along later on, and we find the world is way out of control. When Enoch lived 65 years, he became the father of Methuselah. We know he's the one who's right before the flood. Enoch walked with God after the birth of Methuselah 300 years. Don't think it took the birth of Methuselah for him to walk with God, but, but it mentions it, this idea of walking with God and the birth of his son continues influencing his boys. And he had other sons and daughters, influences his girls. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And so we find oneness with God is simply walking with God. Do you walk with God? That's language that, in a way, is cliche. Because what does it mean to walk with God? That would mean that you would have a relationship with God. That would mean that you would be able to approach him like my little boy approaches me. Do you feel that you can approach God that way? If you do not, then I suggest that we sit down sometime and we look at the picture of God that is in your mind and we look at the picture of God that's presented in the Bible because the picture of God is that when his little boy Ephraim was little, he carried him. And yeah, Ephraim did a lot of bad things, including betraying Israel, but he still loved him. And so what does it mean to walk with God? Somehow that means a relationship, a trust, a unitedness of purpose. Like, we, 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 we're, we're going to go walk to the lake together. It implies that there is an agreement between the two parties that we need God and that God will work through us. And so you look at the value of that. It says Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. So he just goes right up to where God is so united with God that they don't find him anymore. <laughs> wow. Could that happen to us? Is that really our focus when we look at the story of Enoch, that somehow I want to walk so close to God that I'll walk right into heaven without dying? Or is our focus like that of Noah, that I'll walk with God even if I do die, whether or not I do die? Because we know Noah walked with God and he still died. So whether I live 
or whether I die, am I still willing to follow him, to walk with him? We know it must have been learned from Adam because it says Adam walked with the Lord in the cool of the day. And he must have described that down through time to the others. Because that enabled Noah, years later, to stand at a time when Earth's history was out of control, to stand at a time when, at a pivotal moment, when if it didn't get any better, the, the human race would destroy itself. And maybe they didn't have the nuclear weapons and all the technology we have today. There's some people who think they lived a long time and they had some of those things. I don't think so, but we don't have really a record of that. But they had enough knowledge to destroy themselves with the swords, with the catapults, with whatever they used. And if Noah had not gotten on that boat, and if God had not stepped in and intervened in earth's history, at that pivotal point in earth's history, they could have destroyed themselves. How do I know that? Well, because their thoughts were evil continually. Versus Enoch's, where Enoch himself was not influenced by that. If you're uh, looking into some Ellen White quotes, it's interesting. I found a whole lot of these things in her quotes, but I found quite a bit of it in the Bible, actually. It says in Manuscript 42 that Enoch lived where the atmosphere was as pure as possible. So we want this walking with God, but what does it look like? It looks like a pure atmosphere. It looks like going to a, a point in a place where you can connect with God. And for Enoch, we find that it mentions him living outside of the huge centers of evil and all of that, and going back in to bring them a message. The book Country Living talks about this idea of moving from the huge cities to the small towns in preparatory for fleeing to the wilderness. Well, here you are. You're in a small town, aren't you, compared to Riverside and L.A. and all of that? But you still have a mission to go here, and even to the Bay Area, if the Lord was to lead you there, we still have a mission before we evacuate, do we not? If you evacuate before your mission's accomplished, that's between you and the Lord, but it hits me wrong to think about evacuating before I've accomplished what the Lord had put on my heart to do. Don't other people need to know about the love of God? Don't they need to know that he's, he's there trying to walk with them and guide them through the, the problems? And don't they need to know about the deceptions that are coming upon the world? Wouldn't we all agree they need to know the truth from the Bible? And so, yeah, I recognize how Enoch might have been outside of that unpure atmosphere, but he went back in. And then it says he had Christ as his constant companion. Is Christ somebody that you look at in a book, you close the book, you put it on the shelf, and that's it? Or you put on the suit, you come to a building, you hear a nice sermon and some sing some songs, and then you leave, and you take off the suit, and Christ isn't there anymore. No, he's your constant companion. No matter where you're at in life, it says he studied the character of God to a purpose. What was his purpose? He wanted to know God. He wanted to know God's character. He wanted to see that God is merciful, long-suffering, abounding in love, and yet he also would hold accountable the wicked. And then it says after he had those mountaintop experiences, out in nature, God is his constant companion, he then spoke of heavenly things. He didn't spend his time speaking of every, all the evil in the world. He spent his time speaking of the heavenly things that he was discovering from God. 
says here in manuscript 111, verse, uh, uh, in 1898, he kept close by the side of God, obeying his every word. There's my boy holding to my finger, obeying me until he got closer to the water, obeying me as we're walking along there. I mean, this is what it's talking about, this idea of total trust in God. He was a wonderful, his was a wonderful life of oneness. You think oneness is my concept? It's right there. It's in the Bible. Jesus prayed for oneness. It's all over the place. Christ was his companion. He was in intimate fellowship with God. That's what it means to walk with God. It's not a list, because you know what? My boy does not make a list when he comes up with his, to his daddy. And I don't give him a whole list of rules to say, here's exactly what you need to do. Just listen to what I have to tell you when we are together. Which implies you've got to spend time together to listen. And he was a prophet, she says, and she quotes Jude. We know from the New Testament that Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was attested as having pleased God. Which means he had to know God to know how to please God, right? And Hebrews 13, 16 says that do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So in the book of Hebrews, it's not about the offering or not about this good deed or that good deed. It's this idea of naturally flowing out of you is this desire to do good to people and to share what you have. If you don't have a desire to do good to people and you don't want to share what you have, then you are not walking with God, and neither am I. We need to have that desire. That is pleasing to God. And then in Jude, some people think this is an apoc from apocryphal writing, uh, but it's interesting that it's quoted by our, our church leaders over the years. They, they looked at Enoch and they said, you know what, it actually seems like though it was written down in what became apocryphal or, or a pseudonym, it actually appears to be something that Enoch would have had in his day. It was of these also, it says in Jude 1, verse 14, that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, there he is, he's a prophet, saying, Behold, the Lord came with his holy myriads to execute judgment on all, to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness, which they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And so he had this life of oneness, one in which he pleased God, one in which he not only did good, but he shared that message with others, one in which he was given a vision that though it looked like the world was way out of control, it's like he's giving a vision of the second coming of Jesus. Because where else do you find Jesus coming with all his angels? He's all the way down past his time, beyond our time, and sees Jesus coming and says, ultimately, God will hold them accountable for their evil and the evil that they spoke, not only against us, but against him. And so he had that oneness with God. And not only him, but Noah had oneness with God because Enoch influenced Lamech, right? And it kept, the influence kept going down through time. Enoch's oneness with God continued on down. And it says that Noah had this oneness as well. The Lord saw that the wickedness of the earth, of the man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only, what is it? Evil. Continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. 
if it's grieving him to his heart, then he, they're not able to connect with God then, are they? Because they're grieving God. They're not going according to what his heart, his will is. Their thoughts are evil all the time. And it gets the Lord to the point where he says, why did I have this child anyway? It's hurt me. Doesn't he know? Doesn't she know? Don't they know how much they're hurting him? And how are they hurting him? By killing one another. By tearing each other down. By having false prophets and false messages and all of that. It's just tearing God apart. And it says it grieved him to his heart. And if you could do some reverseness in this text, if that is undoing of oneness, then the reverse would be to keep it going. If your thoughts of your mind, your imagination are on him, then you're staying connected. If you don't think of evil all the time, then you're staying connected. Because in their day, when they didn't, their hearts were not in connection with God's heart. And so the question came to me, how much time are we, am I, spending looking at the evil in others? The evil in the world around me? The evil that just permeates society? How much time are we spending, instead of looking at that, how much time are we spending in prayer with God, connecting with God, and studying His Word? We could read a whole lot of other books about God, but how much time are we spending here in this book in whom the prophets are in agreement with each other? What does my heart become like? If I find myself becoming evil, it's probably because I've beheld it too much. There I was in January, before they even asked me to think about coming here, and I've been in the church ministry for eight years, and then I was assistant for about three years before that, so you add it all up, you can start seeing how long I've been in the ministry, but as you go from a new believer to studying to prepare for ministry, and then eventually you get right into there, you start dealing with things all the time, you start seeing things that really get you questioning, and when those things that happen in the church and in society begin to influence you, and you begin to see that, hey, I'm becoming like them, you have to step back and say, no, Lord, I don't want to become someone who has evil thoughts about my brothers or sisters. I don't want to become who speaks about my brothers and sisters. So there I was in January, and I was out walking one night at around three in the morning. We were having a pastor's retreat in Leone Meadows, and there I was walking, and I was thinking, why, Lord, why am I up this early in the morning? I, I know I need exercise, and I'm going to get it later, but why at three in the morning? And so there I was walking this loop, walking this loop, going through my scripture memorization, just kind of going through it. And I, I was, had a few prayer requests that came in every once in a while. And I got to the point where I heard a, a coyote, a, group of, a whole group of coyotes howl. I thought, well, that's where I wanted to walk next. So I paused. And I didn't walk over there. And I thought to myself, that's exactly what's happening to you. You're listening to the coyote howls. You're listening to the, the, the insinuations. You're listening to the troubles in this world. And you're not going where God has told you to go. You, you want to walk down there, but why are you allowing the coyotes to determine your path? Why are you allowing the evil in this world to determine your thoughts? So all this is hitting me, right? 
And so I decided I'm going to walk over there anyway. I walk over, and I had left my Bible over there anyway. So I picked up my Bible. I, no, there was no coyotes by the time I got over there. And there was nothing. It was just this nice quietness, and the sun was rising there in the, in the, in the meadow there at Leone Meadows. And I sat down on a chair, and I opened up my Bible, and I began to read scriptures long ago. And it reminded me that I have no reason to have a heavy heart. I have no reason to think evil about anybody else. I have no one to blame but myself if I don't go to God and say, you know what, I don't want to become like the coyotes. I don't want them to influence me that way. I want to be like you. So there I was, sunrising, and I said, Lord, renew that covenant within me that I had years ago when I first became a Christian. Renew it once again today. And it's not like I don't pray that every day, but there I was. And we too have that choice today. We can see the evil all around us in this world. We can see the evil in one another, too. It's there. We're all evil. We can, if we looked in the mirror, we'd see a lot of evil there, probably more than we see in everybody else combined. But is that where we stay? Or do we go to God and say, God, change my heart to be like yours? And so the Spirit was working in Noah's day, for it says that there Jesus went to the spirits in prison in the days of Noah. And if you've got questions on that text, we can sit in the office and talk about it. It's pretty clear that the Holy Spirit was contending with man for 120 years, and it's pretty clear that Jesus was speaking through Noah, speaking through these prophets like, like we find Enoch and others, speaking through them, through the Holy Spirit guiding them. And so, yes, in a way, Jesus went to those very individuals in Noah's day during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were saved through water. And so these people back then needed a heart change. God sent messengers to call for the heart change. Many of them did not respond. And if they did, they must have died off before the flood because only eight got in the ark. And so we need a heart change. And that's why it says in Genesis 6, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the ground, man and beast and creeping things, for I'm sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace or favor in the eyes of the Lord. There he was, in the midst of everything going on. It's like it didn't phase him, at least for that period of time. Later on, he has troubles, but it didn't phase him. And we too can find that favor or grace. We need it our day as well. And that's where FBI text comes in, young people. You can simply write down Matthew 24. And if you don't think you need the same grace that he had then, then just turn to Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verse 36. But at that day and hour, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> Matthew 24, 36, but at that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Matthew 24, verse 37. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will be the coming of the Son of Man. And so if that's happening then, and Jesus is saying it's going to happen in our day, then we need that same grace, favor, kindness is another word there. We need to recognize that God has been so kind to us that we in turn will not be like the world around us. And if we're bringing that worldly stuff in of unkindness, unforgiveness, 
evil thoughts, evil words, then we need to bring it in and leave it at the foot of the cross and leave here with a cleansing. So it says, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Why? Because he walked with God. We think of Enoch as the walking with God guy, but Noah walked with God because, why? He had found grace, kindness, favor in the eyes of the Lord. God looked down with love and said, there's my boy. There's his family. Look at them. It's like they're, they're sitting there in, in the midst of a perverse generation, and there they are shining forth. God sees that and describes it in the Bible as walking with God. And so that oneness that Enoch had, that oneness that Noah had of walking with God brought about a new beginning for our world, and it happens again today in our hearts. Because if you look and you compare the flood to the creation story, you find all kinds of parallels. And then if you compare the flood to the ministry of Jesus, you find all kinds of parallels. We find in Genesis 6 that water covered the earth. The wind, or the ruach, was upon the waters find that in Genesis 1 too, don't we? And then after the flood has come and and cleansed the world and the the waters begin to subside and dry ground begins to start appearing, though not perfectly yet, he sends out a raven, does he not? And that raven goes over the waters, doesn't find the ground, right? Comes back, sends out the dove, we know the story. And the dove becomes the focal point. If you know ancient Near Eastern religion, you know that the Babylonians worship the raven, the unclean bird, whereas the Israelites worship God, and they use a clean bird to represent that clean relationship with God. And so Noah, clear, Moses, when he writes he clearly points out the dove over the raven. That's probably where the raven worship came from after the flood was potentially even this story itself. And he's pointing them to the dove and saying, God gives us that cleansing. Seven days are mentioned two times, with the olive leaf being mentioned in one of those occurrences. God commands Noah to go forth and blesses him. As a result, God receives that worship from Noah, and he promises to never flood the world again, and he puts that rainbow in the sky. You see any parallels to that in creation? What about the new creation? Because as you look down through Genesis, you find the flood there is in Genesis 7, Genesis 8, the flood subsides. Genesis 8, 20, the God's promise is there. Genesis 9, the covenant with Noah is enacted. Then eventually, what, is hap- what happens with Noah and his sons? The fruit temptation. Huh, just like we had in the garden. And then the nakedness again. And so we find there was a new creation with Noah, and then it's like it's undone again, just like in the fall. And you get down in Genesis 10, it describes the nations descending And who comes out of those nations? Jesus himself. Jesus comes. His ministry is ratified by water. There's a dove over that water. He eventually finds himself in the olive groves of Gethsemane. We find water and blood as he dies, comes out of his side, and on the seventh day, he rests from his work of saving mankind. Brings us new life. And so you could see direct parallels from the flood, which harkens back to creation, which points us all the way to Jesus and says, even in an evil world, we have a Noah figure, Jesus himself, who says, if you will be one with me, you can have a new creation, a new beginning today. You don't have to wait until he comes and you see him. We can accept that today. And he says, we accept that. He'll give all authority to us. 
to take that message to the world. That oneness will be permeating the world. The one who has escaped the catastrophe could best express his gratitude and submission through sacrificial worship, acknowledging God as the sovereign of the universe. Have we acknowledged that Jesus has done everything? That there he was at the beginning, desiring oneness. Enoch walked with God. Noah walked with God. All the way down through time, they began to undo that walk with God. And then we get to Jesus, and Jesus says, you can walk with me again. You can walk in the way, the truth, and the life. Are we thankful for what he has done? Are we thankful for the sacrifice of Jesus? Do we daily walk with him, study his character, talk to him, speak of him, share him, focus on him rather than the garbage in our world? I long for the day when heaven will come down, plant itself here like a heavenly olive branch, and we will have a new world forever. One that's cleansed by fire of flood, not fire of water. One that then means that our hearts have been cleansed, and we have been looking forward to that experience. But if we're not having oneness with God by walking with him, will we look forward to that day? It existed in Noah's day, in Jesus' day. Then Jesus says, our day is like Noah's day, and we can have that same walk with God today. And so I long to see Jesus in my family, like Noah influenced his family. I long to see Jesus in my church family. I long to see Jesus in my world around me through our sharing of this Jesus. My closing song is to that effect. You ever get to the point where you say, when am I going to see you, Jesus? I want to see you coming. That's what our closing song is about. Oh, when shall I see Jesus? I invite you to uh, join me as I unhook my computer and put the words on the screen. And if you'd like to stand, feel free. shall I see Jesus and reign with him above and shall hear the trumpet sound in that morning and from flowing fountain drain everlasting love and shout and shall hear the trumpet sound in that morning oh shall glory I shall mount above the skies when I hear the trumpet sound gospel armor of faith and hope and love and you'll hear the trumpet sound in that morning and when the world has ended he'll carry you above and you'll hear the trumpet sound in that morning I shall mount transport the host of heaven sing and shall hear the trumpet sound in that morning our tongues shall chant the glories of our immortal king and shall hear the trumpet sound in that morning oh shall glory 
Father in heaven, we trust that as we walk with you in oneness of heart, of thoughts, looking at your character, looking at your kindness to us, and we share that around, we actually really can't help but share it, that the world will see Jesus, that they will be better prepared for his coming, and we will all shout glory as we see our Savior coming. So Lord, help us to look forward to that. Guide us in our daily lives to see what we can do to maintain that oneness and that friendship with you until that day when we do see you face to face. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.